podcast episode two i have one of my favorite people jason strasser it was it was i was once encouraged to uh do a podcast where i would find poker players that transitioned to something else and did it very well i never took up that idea but we've sort of stumbled on it by accident because jason i really can't think of anyone who's managed that transition better than you have talk to me about the way that poker helped you i mean there's there's the obvious things like thinking about expected value, thinking about risk control, but what beyond the obvious, in what ways beyond the obvious did poker help you? Uh, it was for sure losing money. Like I, when I showed up at Morgan Stanley my first day, there were all these you know, kids that went to fancy schools and whatever, great grades. But I saw them going through things that I had gone through when I was you know, 17, when they were starting their job, which is you have a trade that loses money. And handling the ups and downs of that becomes sort of second nature for a poker player. It is not normal. It's like normal humans are not, not used to that kind of thing. So for sure it was being able to sort of rationalize, like I'm, I have a strategy. I'm trying to improve my strategy over time. And is that me or is that you? Okay. That was um, me. okay. So improve my strategy over time. And, and I've had experience losing money. Like the downswings in poker were by far the most valuable thing I had when I started my career. Everyone else thinks it's math, statistics, or you know, looking for expected value. You can, you can really teach that a lot easier than you can teach handling a big downswing. And trading just like everything, you have to handle those downswings, those bad trades, those bad moments. And so that was by far the, the thing I took the most with me. Yeah, one thing, one thing that's really helped me uh, from poker is an appreciation of what a hyper-competitive environment looks like. Yeah. And... I don't think people understand exactly how hyper-competitive poker is. Like people now love to say, okay, in 2006, it was so easy. It wasn't easy. It was fucking hard. It's always been hard. It, it, it just goes from being really hard to being harder still. And markets are a lot the same way. Um, so I think for me, poker gave me an appreciation of what a hyper-competitive market looks like and how a hyper-competitive market evolves over time. And just how difficult it is to get an edge, how much energy it takes, how much thinking it takes. Um, I imagine that experience was similar to, for you. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And you, if you think about, you know, poker and Wall Street, you know, you can, the stakes are like so much bigger on, on Wall Street. And so the amount of people, you know, I think the amount of energy the world expends on these types of things is proportional to how much money there's available if you, if you succeed at them. So I think 2006, the big difference was there was just a lot more money out there to be made. You know, there was just more money to win than there is now. I, I, I agree with you. It was hard in 2006, but there was a lot more money out there to be earned. Just people just giving it away and more casual players in the game. Um, but yeah, Wall Street for sure. It's hyper competitive. Like it, what I do every day for a living, it's a zero sum game. You know, there's every time I buy something, there's someone selling it. And the other side's a professional 99% of the time. And so... I think for me, I realized, at least I realize now, that like a lot of people, when they, when they think about what makes them happy every day or what they want to do, um, I think you're better off sticking to things that you're good at versus things that you love, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Uh, for me, being at the top of poker, I mean, I wasn't not the top of poker, but being like competitive at poker, I love that sort of place where you're pushing the theory and you're not reading books. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily looking for a bunch of material and soaking it in. You're the one pushing the theory. You're experimenting, and then you see other people start to copy you. I really love that. And what I do now for a living is very similar to that. You know, we're competing in in a game. You can call it a game. You can call it whatever you, whatever you want. And everyone has a strategy, and everyone's trying to improve that strategy. And you're playing for lots of money. And I imagine people that do DFS at a high level, it's the same thing. And and people that do um, any kind of game or sort of a zero sum game for a living. It's, it's that iterative pattern. And I, I love that process. And I couldn't imagine doing something that didn't involve that. So now you're an options maestro. And in 2006, you were an A poker player. 
What was your grade as an options trader in your first year? Really bad. Uh, what was your grade relative to now? What was your grade relative to the first year? I wouldn't even give myself a grade back when I started. So I started in 2007. You know, I think it's like learning a language. You know, when you start trading options, you, you don't, you're, you aren't even an options trader. I tell the young kids that we hire, I'm like nine months, just don't get frustrated for nine months because it's like learning a new language. It takes a lot of time. So I would, I would give myself like an incomplete into when I first started because AI didn't, there's so many more variables. You, you think about a deck of cards and you, you run out, a, run out some boards, you know, there's a very finite set of outcomes for that. Um, you play DFS. There's, there's a finite set of outcomes for the players that you're playing. You know, there's not, there's nothing crazy. I remember one time, um, you know, one time any, you can pick any day in the market. There's something happening that you didn't even like expect. It's the equivalent of somebody walking up to the poker table and just ripping up your card in the middle of the hand. You know, there's just like these unknown, there, there's, it's such a wide, uh, range of outcomes in markets compared to, uh, compared to games. So I think for that reason alone, just because there's so many companies, there's so many different things going on, you really can't be even judge yourself as a trader until you get into it. And I would say like, looking back like four or five years into my career when I was like 2011, I, I still think compared to, you know, looking back, it's the same way you look back at old poker hands. I don't know if you ever do that, but if you look back at, when I used to play a lot of poker, I'd look back at a hand a year ago and I'd be like, man, I could do that a lot better. That was pretty bad. It's the same thing now. Like I look back at trades I did even two or three years ago and I'm like, I, I wouldn't have done that today. So um, I think hard to give myself a grade, but uh, you know, I think it, me versus the competition, it just sort of got it better over time. Like it, me versus my peers got better over time, but I was pretty bad when I started. So 2008, uh, Banks are losing a lot of money. Probably some of the people that you started with at Morgan Stanley were moving back in with their parents. Um, what was the environment on Wall Street like in 2008? What, what was your personal experience? It's really good not to make any money when you're in that environment. Uh, I was the kid making no money. So it was actually a very unique situation because as, as you know, when Wall Street firms are, are trimming down or they're cutting costs and they're laying off people, they typically are doing it in the middle. You know, they're keeping the young, young people that are competent and that don't make any money. And then they're going to keep the senior people that are really the difference makers at the firm. And then they look in the middle for people that are maybe a little overpaid. Maybe a kid could step up and take their job one day or whatever. That's where they do a lot of the cutting. So from a like personal uh, job security level at the firm, I was totally secure. And I was so grateful that I got to see that because seeing 2008, from an options trading perspective is something you'll never forget. You know, if you went through that, even though I was only one year in my career, you'll never forget it. Um, so I'm grateful. But at the same time, I thought the firm was going under. <laughs> that was that. So, you know, you can see uh, using the credit default swap market, you can see basically a live betting market on the odds your firm is around at all. And, you know, as times get worse in 2008, I was looking at Morgan Stanley's CDS and it was saying at one point, you know, 70% chance of going under, 80% chance of going under. So, you know, I'm a math, you know, whatever. We're all reasonable people here. You know, I remember calling my parents and being like, you know, I gave this a shot. I'm going to go back to poker. You know, I don't know what to do. This might just all be over. And I remember the senior people, Morgan Stanley, all coming to the floor and huddling us up and say, everything is going to be okay. Like, everything will be great. Don't worry. And then every day you'd come to work and there'd be people unwinding trades where they owed Morgan, Morgan Stanley owed them money. And they'd come in every day and be like, where's that money? Where's that money? Where's that money? Where's that money? So you see the, you're the trader, you know, trading these things. So I'm like, okay, that, that's not a good sign. And then, you know, years, you know, Morgan Stanley ended up getting bailed out by a Japanese firm, Japanese bank put in the money that they needed and they wrote out the rest of it. Obviously they got some help from the government as well, but you know, they, Morgan Stanley survived. Um, but later on uh, the CEO of Morgan Stanley at the time wrote a book and he said, he, the same guy who's on the floor saying everything's going to be okay. He told his wife it was over, you know? So, um, I found it to be a really interesting time. I look back on that time, like I'm very, very grateful. And I think people who traded through that time are different. You know, like I see a lot of people that have started their trading career, 2010, 2014. And I, I truly believe you need to see something like that at some point in your life. And it will change how you risk manage and approach things. 
It taught you also like how bad things can get. It taught you to be cautious. Uh, one thing I've noticed in a long history of poker and markets is that poker players by temperament tend to be a bit pessimistic. Like I don't, I don't think it was, I don't think it was entirely coincidental that the that poker players latched on to to Bitcoin and altcoins because they they're they're just sympathetic to the arguments that the monetary system is going to collapse, that everyone's fucking them, that that we're going to eventually go to Mad Max world where you need to have your your money in your hip pocket or whatever. So in markets, in real life, I know guys that are just optimistic and it just really works for them. Like I know guys that just they saw the iPhone come out in 2007 and they're like, you know what? This is this is going to be the change of the world. I'm going to buy Apple stock with like 50% of my money and just hold it. And they did that and they just never sold. And and like those stories happen, but not to poker players. Poker players are pessimistic by nature and they tend to thrive more in that 2008 type environment. I've just, I've noticed very, you see very few poker players that are optimistic by nature and We've spent enough time chatting about markets that I know that you have a tiny bit of a pessimism tinge. Is that accurate? I'm not like a one of these people that lives life just like rooting for the market to tank every day. Um, but yeah, there's certainly, especially today, there's certainly like plenty of, you don't even need to look very far to be pessimistic about markets. And I, I like to think like my view changes over time, but what I do every day, I am not worried about that. I'm not betting on the market going up, you know, or betting on the market going down. Uh, I'm focusing on my game that I'm playing. And so I think uh, I do have my views on markets, but I, you know, we're in the middle of this ridiculous long bull market. And if you were really truly awfully pessimistic at any point, at this point, you probably out of business or carried out, you know, all those hedge fund managers, if you look at them that hated markets or whatever, at some point, in the last 10 years, uh, it's been ugly for them. So I, I do have my views on markets, but when I come to work, I don't bring them with me, if that makes any sense. I'm playing my game. I'm buying things I think are too cheap. I'm selling things that I think are too expensive. Same way you approach a poker hand, you know, just you know, where can I find value? And so, yeah, I think you're right about poker players being pessimistic. I don't know necessarily Bitcoin. I think poker players are actually using Bitcoin. You know, I think poker players were early adopters. You know, poker players are very sympathetic to sending money around the world and the challenges that that has. So I think part of it is pessimism. I think also partially is like poker players were actually using Bitcoin for real reasons. Um, so it made Bitcoin made a lot of sense. And Bitcoin is one of my big regrets in life that I am not like super duper rich from that. I wasn't. A, I wasn't a participant either. I was. Yeah. A, yeah. Um, so. Um, you had some big early days at Morgan Stanley. You mentioned one day where you made uh, thirty-five million dollars. Yeah, one one time for the firm. Um, another day where you made twelve million dollars. What do those days feel like? What happened? The first one was a really funny story. So it kind of gives you a story of how banks work and how the game at a bank works. So I started off at Morgan Stanley two thousand seven. When you start off as a junior trader, you don't have your own book. You know, you're, you're learning options, you're, you know, you're, you're getting coffee, you're doing what you're making spreadsheets, you're doing the small trades, but there's no book waiting for you. You know, it's not like a normal career where you say, okay, I do this, I move up a ladder. You, you start as a junior consultant and you move up, whatever, whatever. It's not like that. There's no book waiting for you. Um, but 2008, a few people left and there was a book waiting for me. And it was, my first book was a materials book. So, you know, think about like, you know, mining companies and whatever. And I was doing a lot of uh, agriculture at the time as well. And then later on, um, there was an industrials book that opened up and the industrials book, nobody wanted. And the reason nobody wanted to trade the industrials book is that one day when the industrial traders was, was not in the office, um, the, uh, a customer came into Morgan Stanley and did a gigantic trade. And it was in uh, Burlington, Northern Illinois, which is a railroad company. If you ever, you know, seen a railroad go by, it's like 50% to be this company. And that was when that idea really, really cultivated because I kind of got out of the trading world where you're trading and, and sort of uh, you're going from one trade to the next trade to the next trade to the next trade into a much slower environment where I had a lot more time to do research. And that's where the idea really kept festering. 
And I went to my boss and I said, hey, you know, we've done a few of these little trades. Look how much potential this has. Um, I'd love to run this strategy like separated from the rest of this fund. And he didn't like that idea. And so I was 27, quit my job and uh, decided to start a commingled investment fund. And so I think, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. But um, the whole time, it, the idea behind caption ultimately came from being on the wrong side of it, you know, learning from being, getting killed, losing money on the other side of these trades. And that's kind of how we started. Well, the wrong side in the option market context could could refer to inside information, being on the wrong side of inf inside information. It could also it could also refer to just someone else being more knowledgeable about the moments of the distribution, like the skewness looking different than you think, or something like that. So, what what type of adverse selection was it? For sure, I never would start a fund saying let's I'm going to do it because of. No, 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 I know. But as a market maker, maybe you were victim to inside information. Yeah, let's just be very clear. When people cheat in the markets, a lot of times they're using options. You know, if you know, if you, if you, if you know something you're not supposed to know, and I, tell, I want to tell everyone out there, never do this. It's just not worth the upside. It's just not, no matter how much money you make, it's just not worth the risk that you ruins your life. But a lot of people are tempted. You know, they, they hear about a deal. You know, I've heard things at poker games. And of course we go through, whenever you hear something like that and you work at a place, you go through the right steps to make sure you're never going to be breaking any rules. Um, but people usually use options to cheat. And if you look at a lot of sort of takeouts, let's say company A is buying company B and you look at company A's options activity before that event, a lot of times you'll see very suspicious looking trades. It's really the venue for people to cheat. So yeah, of course, I was on the other side of a lot of that um, a lot of the clients that I had at Morgan Stanley at some point or another, some, a, a decent amount of them ended up getting in trouble. Um, you know, if you look back at insider trading, there was a lot more that used to happen than there does today. And a lot of those people got caught. Um, I'm not talking about that at all. What I was talking about, what we do is more research driven stuff. So we do a lot of, re a lot of homework about the distributions and we look for spots where the distributions don't line up with what we think. And that's, you know, that's, I think, you know, just backing up for people that aren't familiar with options, you know, an option, when you price an option, there's all these variables that go into a formula. Most people are using a Black-Scholes model, but you can use lots of different ones. Um, there's all these variables that go into the model, but there's one variable that's the big unknown, which is future volatility. And so what option traders are ultimately doing is spending a lot of time focused on that one thing, which is how volatile will this be in the future? And the really good option traders have a very good feeling for when the market might not be right about future volatility. It could be for lots of different reasons. Um, a lot of people think, you know, the best options traders are the ones that are, uh, they know Apple's going to go up and then they can make the most money with that idea using options or whatever. I think the best options traders are the ones that are very good at knowing upcoming events and very good at knowing when options volatility assumptions are not correct. So I know you can't talk much about uh, trades or returns, um, but Maybe you're able to give the example of the Trump election to talk about. I can't give specific trade stuff. I mean, but okay. just, just in general, you know, the 2016 election was a really good, um, was a really impactful moment for certain companies. Um, obviously, the markets were very interesting. If you remember when Trump won, the markets were way down, futures were way down. And, you know, that, that famous story of Carl Icahn leaving the presidential uh, rally to go buy futures. Um, you know, and then, then, then of course we had a gigantic rally in equities. Um, but yeah, like it's a good example. Like when you're, when you're thinking about the presidential election from like a re an options research perspective, you're thinking about which industries or sectors are most impacted by what, what might happen in the election. And, you know, just to give you some examples, if you read the paper today, you'll read about health insurance companies. They're, they're in focus right now because there's just an idea that Elizabeth Warren wins. It's going to be very, very bad for health insurance companies. If we ever get towards sort of a Medicare for all uh, situation, it could be very bad for insurance companies. On the flip side, people think if Donald Trump wins, there's nothing gonna change with healthcare, which is a pretty obvious read right now. And so that's an example of a stock that has a lot riding on the election. In 2016, there were a bunch of industries we had, and different stocks we identified that had a lot riding on the election. And I think um, elections are great events and they're, and they're um, something that, anyone trading options or anyone in markets should be paying attention to because they can really lead to 
big shifts in how stocks are priced. So in terms of the founding of Caption Partners, take us through two processes. One, the natural place for you to be is New York City. Your friends are in New York City. Your career was in New York City. You started the company in Oklahoma City. So talk talk through that. Also talk through the logistics of starting an investment fund. So we actually started in New York. Um, so we uh, got together with, I had two partners. One of them was actually, uh, he, he only was with us for a year, but Chris Farr just, he had a poker background. He played a lot of, he's involved in DFS community as well. I think he works at DraftKings now. Um, so Chris, myself, and my other partner, Will, uh, we started and we thought we would raise, call it $20 million when we launched. And anyone that knows hedge funds, you know, even $20 million is just absolutely nothing for hedge funds. But we started off um, with $2.7 million, which is not a lot of money. And I still to this day, like I, I know every single person that put money into that first 2.7 million because on paper, we had never run a hedge fund. Um, the fund was based off of an idea that we had. We had, no, we had no returns. We had no nothing. You know, if you think about going to raise money for any product, whether it's a startup or a fund, you know, usually you need to come with something. Uh, maybe not a startup these days, but for sure a fund. And we, we on paper, it, it, was not, it was not where it needed to be, um, for, certainly for an institutional investor to invest. Um, but we took the approach with our fund the same way you take an approach with a startup, which is you raise a little bit of money and you sort of prove out an idea. And that's what we did. You know, you know when you're a startup, you, you get a little bit of money, you, you build a, a beta version of your website, you go get some traction, and then you go back to investors and get more money. We took the same approach with hedge funds. Let's prove out an idea. Let's get some data. Even though it's tiny, tiny trades because we're only running 2.7 million, let's get some data behind it. Let's show people that this idea actually works. And we did that. And and then over time, grow, grew it every year. And Oklahoma City was kind of a crazy story. So, um, so I went to Duke. We had a Duke connection with a guy by the name of Aubrey McClendon. He was a well-known oil and gas guy. He started Chesapeake Energy. Um, he's one of the first guys to really pioneer uh, horizontal drilling, um, uh, which is when you drill down and then you drill L and you can frack. And all, you know, if you think about the energy revolution in our country, a lot of the beginnings of that started with this guy. And he was a very eccentric guy. He owned, you know, he owned part of the Thunder. He was very big in Oklahoma City. And I had tried to reach out to him because I knew him from Duke when I launched the fund, but the timing didn't really work out. Uh, and I tried again a couple of years after we launched. And he was like, hey, yeah, I'll put in some money, but also you should open up an office in Oklahoma City and uh, I'll help you raise money here. And he had just raised $10 billion for his new venture. So I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, if he just raised $10 billion, you know, maybe, you know, whatever, maybe he's obviously good at raising money. Um, so I came to Oklahoma City. Uh, we kept an office in New York. So right now, Caption has an office in New York and Oklahoma City. And uh, yeah, so long story short, uh, love leaving New York. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else out there feels the same way. But for me, I got into an environment that was much better for me to succeed at work because all the distractions were gone. My commute to and from work was very simple. Cost of business and cost of life went way down. Um, that's the story. About, and it, the story got even crazier because um, two years after we, uh, Aubrey did that deal with us, he died in a car accident. So, um, and if you just go back, when you, if you go back from starting Caption to today, like the amount of ups and downs you have when you start something like this, not just money, just life, it's, it's incredible. Because you start Caption, you're living off savings. You know, you don't, you know, when you're living off savings, no matter how much savings you have, it's not, it's not a very good place to be. So that's where we started. Then we got, then I moved to Oklahoma city. I didn't have a driver's license. For example, my analyst used to have to come to my house every day and sit in the passenger seat while I drove to work. Cause I had a learner's permit and not a, not an actual, just, just painting what my, my life looked like at the time. Um, I was also a single Jewish guy in Oklahoma city, which is also like not, not exactly where you needed to be, but uh, found my wife, super happy. Shout out to Amber. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think the Oklahoma City story is great. We're the only hedge fund in Oklahoma City. There was another one that... Um, really? Is that possible? Um, as far as we know, there was another guy who, uh, who bought and sold cows. We called it Cow Arb. And uh, I actually went to the cattle auction with him one time and checked out what he was doing. But yeah, there's, there's really nothing. So it's kind of cool. Like the, the thing about a business is like when you hire employees um, in New York City and it's very competitive for talent, um, the employees are less sticky. When you 
And, and what, that, what, that, what that ends up doing is, I'm not complaining about having to pay people in New York, but what it happens to do is when you take young people and you train them and you put a ton of time into training them, you're more at risk of losing them in a New York market. Uh, in Oklahoma City, we hire a lot of young people, we train them, but uh, we feel more confident training young people because they're more likely to be sticky in a market like Oklahoma City where there's no other hedge fund in town and we're paying them better than, you know, you're gonna get paid anywhere else in town. And so, so I, I, love, I love living here, I love working here. I've just got my Thunder season tickets, which is gonna be interesting because I like literally got them and then they traded the whole team away. So, um, but you know, I'm really excited and I think, uh, I, I always tell people who, are, who have only lived in big cities their whole life, you know, you should, you should really try some, you'll, you'll, you'll have a lot of fun leaving. So I just tell them, yeah. Well, I enjoyed my, my brief visit uh, in Oklahoma go. City. Cool. Yeah, I remember that. I enjoyed my, my stop in. Um, okay. So now you've grown to the point where you're close to 10% of option volume on? No, no, 1%. 1%. 1%. I apologize. Yeah. Okay. Which is still, it's a, it's a, a huge amount of activity. And it's a combination of, Again, I don't want to talk too much about trading, but a combination of market making and speculative positions. Speculative always implies the wrong things. You know, I don't know what's speculative and what's not speculative, but yeah, we, you know, we combine research and we combine market making. I'm sure uh, individuals have talked with you about their option strategies and their options portfolios. And I'm sure there's some interesting voices going on in your head when you hear those, those discussions. What, what is... What is your advice to the casual observer who's dabbling in options? Yeah, you, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, inc it's incredible that investing and trading is one of those things where people who are not doing it full time think they're very good at it. You know, like there's not that many like casual part-time poker players that think they're the best in the world or amazing at it. Um, but there are a lot of people that sort of trade a little bit or invest in their own account a little bit and don't dedicate like their whole life to it that think they're amazing at it. And yeah, options are, um, addictive, you know, like if you, everyone who's traded options has had that feeling where they, you know, they bought an option for X and it went to 10 X or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's a very great feeling when that goes well. And I think that only supports people to keep trading options. And a lot of why people are trading options is because they either have a view on where a stock is going. So they think, okay, you know, Apple's going up, I'm going to buy call options or whatever. Um, a lot of it is technical analysis stuff, which I have my own views on, but you know, largely speaking, there's a lot of, uh, you know, technical analysis is not really much of a science in my opinion. It's more of, you know, when you do a science, you say, okay, um, you know, if you're doing physics and the ball's rolling down the hill, you can, you can explain exactly how to calculate momentum and why and everything. Uh, when technical analysis happens, it says, okay, if you see this pattern, it means that, and there's no explanation for why. And so there's a whole lot of like people, especially on Twitter that are trading on technicals or I'm not saying you can't make money doing that, but I really think that most people should not trade options. You know, what I always tell people is if you are not a financial person, you know, you really want to just cut the VIG down when you invest, you know, you want to stick to low cost mutual funds or low cost index funds and you wanna cut the big down. And I think, I don't think that's the best way to invest for a sophisticated investor, but for most people out there, that's by far the best option. And just, it's okay to dabble in options the way I dabble in DFS. Like I know I'm gonna lose, I have fun doing it, it's a good sweat, okay, fine. If that's what it is for you, that's great. If it's a utility function to it, that's great. But um, it's really, really hard to make a living at it. And just rough numbers, you know, the option market making people out there are making one to $2 billion a year very consistently off retail flow. And they take the other side of, you know, there's only a very few number of people that are taking the other sides of these retail trades. And uh, those funds are consistently make one to $2 billion a year from retail. So if you think about it, you know, the other side of these trades, it's just like a money printing factory. Yeah, and it's a, it's a zero sum game versus what has historically been positive sum in the market as a whole. Yeah, that's the other thing people don't realize. Exactly right. Like it's a zero sum game and markets, even if you throw darts at the paper and you're a monkey and throw darts at the paper, like you pick stocks that way, um, you know, stocks have a positive expected value to them. You know, they typically are generating cash or, you know, whatever. Obviously you can pick some stocks today that don't fit that requirement, but 
most stocks have, in my opinion, a positive expected value. So that's the thing is like, you can be very mediocre at buying stocks and make money. But if you're mediocre at options, you're going to lose. And um, I just, it's, it's just don't do it. That's my advice. So bringing the poker connect, connection back into it, I think, I think it's not entirely coincidental that you went from poker to options trading as opposed to, say, poker and distressed debt investing where you're spending all your time reading through court documents or something like that. I think it's, there's a, an adrenaline-fueled personality that goes into poker. There's an adrenaline-fueled uh, personality that goes into options. So, so what is it about options that, that really like, gets you going? And, and I also want you to sidebar into another topic, which is um, although you left poker basically 100%, your, your friend set, it seems to me, stayed pretty heavily. I mean, you know the biggest gamblers and poker players of your generation. You've stayed pretty close with them so yeah. you 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 are very much in touch with the poker world and the and the the poker personality the poker personality tends to be um intelligent add but capable of hyper focus which probably is a lot of trading as well how do you how do you gear up your attention span and your and your focus when you're doing the day-to-day -day trading so it's a lot but there you go Options are, um, are super fascinating because they're, so if you, let's just make a very simple example. Let's just say, Brandon, you have a, uh, a house that's worth a million dollars. I'm just making up a number. And I say, okay, Brandon, let's, I got a sheet of paper and it says I can buy your house for 2 million anytime in the next 20 years if I want to. Now that, that sheet of paper has value. Um, the question is how much value is that? paper have, right? So the first thing you do if you want to say, what is that piece of paper worth is you'd have to dig into the real estate market. So a real estate market like Miami, historically more volatile than other real estate markets. That piece of paper in Miami has a lot more value than Oklahoma City, for example, where real estate prices have been much more boring. Um, but that's only the first level of what an option is. So, okay, you can price it on day one. What makes options really, really fascinating is that as time passes and as things move around, your risks are always changing. So you don't have the same position in, let's just say I buy that contract from you and I say, I have the right to buy your house. You know, if three years pass and prices go up 30%, I have a different position. So like every day I come to work and my whole portfolio is very organic and it's changing. And that's what makes options really exciting is that you buy one share of stock, you come back in a week, you have one share of stock, but options aren't like that. And you're, and, and it takes a certain personality. ADD is a very good thing. It's a very sort of accurate way of looking at it. You have to sort of keep an eye on your, on what's going on very, very, very closely because things are always changing. And when things, when options expire, there's a lot of action that happens. And so I think just the, the whole understanding how options work and understanding how things change over time is super fascinating. Um, I also think options are fascinating because people trade them for all different reasons. You know, when someone buys a stock, they think it's going up. When someone sells a stock, they think it's going down. Options, there's different stuff going on. You have some people that sell options to try to get some extra yield. So they might buy a stock and sell it, give away some upside in exchange for some, a fixed payment. You have people that are hedging. You have people that are just straight up punting and gambling. Um, you have all sorts of different types of customers that trade options. You have asset managers, you have retail, you have professionals. You know, you know, different groups of people. And so I think options are fascinating because you have all these people coming together, trading these things, all looking at them in different ways. And then you also have um, the process of managing a portfolio is very interesting. It's not very static. It's very dynamic. And that's why, that's, that's why I love options. So the second part you said on the personality, it was like the personality. Yeah. Um, you're right. I think, again, it comes back down to I, I have a very strong belief that people who do what they're good at are going to find more happiness than people who do what they love. <laughs> but that kind of sounds dark, but that's what, that's what I believe. And if you're a poker player and you look at distressed debt investing, for example, you're not really playing to your strengths. You know, when I went to go interview for jobs, uh, traditional investment banking jobs, they didn't talk to me. Consulting jobs, they didn't talk to me. You know, I had a B, B minus grades in school. Like I didn't have no one, there was nothing on paper that had me stand out except poker. But of course, a lot of the trading people were like, I want to talk to this guy. He's had success in poker. You know, and so I think like 
the skill sets that go into trading don't go into other things. And I wouldn't, I, I have a very hard time believing I'd be any good at those things. Um, so yeah, and, and we have a, you know, at my firm, we have a culture of bringing on people with sort of poker backgrounds as well, because whether they're poker players or just, or just kind of think like poker players, um, I, I always found, you know, and you asked me about my friend group, I always found it really natural to be friends with people that kind of approach things the same way. And even though I went off and did something completely different than poker players, I always stay in touch with my poker friends because um, it's, I feel like we always speak the same language. And, you, you know, in the, in the normal world, you, there's a big difference between a random person and a poker person. And I just love being around poker people. And, uh, and then, of course, like, we always, like, you know, like, um, I always like getting involved in staking poker players and getting involved in action like that and vice versa on my stuff. So I also think it's, I also think it's a symbiotic relationship. I think a lot of poker players want to have someone they can call and be like, Hey, I saw this in the market. What am I thinking? So I have, you know, I'm, I have a lot of friendships that I think are not, are of course based off of friendships, but there's a symbiotic relationship because you know, the poker players I'm talking about, they also want to feel like they have a connection to the real world. Maybe they're playing in games with businessmen or whatever. They want to feel like they can, they can have questions answered about markets, about whatever. And so I'm, I'm a resource for the, a lot of them. Um, okay. Related to this topic of poker players calling you about their options positions. There's always things you can and can't talk about, but I can of course talk about my, my own stories. Yeah. And, and, and you, I, I, I feel like you have similar stories that you may or might may not be able to share. So, um, I'm pretty savvy about markets as you know, and, uh, Every once in a while, I'm, I'll make a, a painful mistake that will teach me something. And um, I had a potash on my, my not, not potash, I'm sorry. Um, what's our, what, what was the popular um, pot stock of the day? Um, oh, Tilray. Tilray. So I had Tilray on my, on my screens. And I was watching Tilray and I was resisting getting involved from 40 to 100 to, I kept resisting getting involved. And then finally, there, there came a point where I was going to just take a small punt. So I, I was looking at the different ways to play it. And the short story was that I wrote 10 contracts, 10 call contracts, um, which is a thousand shares as for, for our viewers. Um, so I'm, I'm giving someone the right to buy Tilray at 170, and I'm get I'm collecting a healthy premium to be able to do that. Well, as you know, this is probably the best example of a short squeeze in the past three years. Um, there was a short squeeze on on Tilray that seemed to be closely related to the option markets, and I remember uh, someone called me because Tilray was going up, and we had been talking about it, and. I was driving over a bridge and it took four minutes to drive over the bridge. And in the four minutes, Tilray went from basically 190 to 290 in the three, in the three minutes. And, and um, I ended up, I don't know, covering at not a good, not a good time. But uh, I recall that other poker players who may or may not have spoken to you had a similar situation and they all, we, came upon it not by talking with each other, but I believe we all came upon it independently and we all did this terrible thing at exactly the same time independently. Yeah, you bet for sure. I can confirm that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there are spots like that that look ridiculous where you see Tilray trading, I don't know, what was it, $10 billion valuation? I don't remember the exact numbers, but you see something that makes no sense, right? You look at its business, you look at its fundamentals, there's no way. And, you know, you can look at companies today, you know, a lot of people talk about like Beyond Meat that went on, a, that's been on a, you know, if you look at the valuation of Beyond Meat, it's, or whatever, there's just a ton of these things. I always caution people to be really careful of the situations where the public flow is very low. You know, when, what that really means, for example, let's just say a company has a hundred shares outstanding, but, but 90 of them are owned by insiders who can't sell them. They have to hold them. Um, what that ends up happening is the actual uh, amount of shares that are available for the public is very low. Only 10 shares are available. And if people are trying to short those shares, it's, it's very, very complicated to short them. And in the case of Tilray, 
I'm guessing you tried to even short the stock. You probably weren't even able to. I'm, I'm guessing your broker wouldn't even have let you done that at the time. So the only option was buying puts, which were crazy expensive, or selling calls. But I always caution people to, to really be careful with those kind of things because it's, it's not about will Tilray come down? And we can all see Tilray has come down from that <laughs> 290 or whatever it was. You know, come, come way down. It's about the path it takes there. And it's about the timing of it, which is the tricky part. And those stocks like Tilray that have no shares available for borrow and the options markets are, are falls very high and there's a ton of crazy stuff going on in the options market, you should just stay away from that just in general. Even, even a lot of professionals stay away from that like because it's, it's not about what is this company worth. Everyone knows it's overvalued. It's just, it's just the supply and demand. There's like a few people on Robinhood or whatever buying the stock. These, you know, oh, pot stock, whatever, buying them. And there's just, there's just no one to sell it. And so it goes crazy. And so I always tell people to don't get involved in options, especially don't get involved in spots like this because you might be right that the stock is overvalued, but you could, it's just executing on that is much more to do with timing than it has to do with the ultimate goal. Even if you were able to short the stock, the broker might've charged you $2 a day to short that stock or whatever. And then maybe it goes down, but maybe you, you paid more in, in borrow costs than you, you made on the short. So I always tell people to be very careful, especially retail clients, because uh, the brokers can really take advantage of different retail clients in that spot. So not to get too deep in the weeds and lose a lot yeah. of viewers, but um, you mentioned just a couple minutes ago that option expiration uh, tends to be an interesting time, an active time. Yeah. And uh, as you know, I come at things from the academic perspective and option expiration is one example where the, the theory and practice of derivative markets are, are very different because in theory, there's nothing special about expiration. And just in the same way that um, I don't think it was coincidental that say I was long uh, or short some calls and other people were short calls and you had this short squeeze. I think possibly the mechanics of the option market were driving the activity of the stock market. And in expiration, there's, there's a tendency for what's going on in the option market to drive the, the stock price, which is not something that theory considers. Explain what that looks like on an expiration day, on a very busy expiration day. It really has to do with positioning. So if you think about, let's just say, for example, uh, one person sold options, and that person that sold options is just not going to pay attention, whether that option finishes in the money or out of the money. Let's just say they maybe it's not going to affect their trading between now and expiration. Let's just say like, for example, um, you own shares of a stock and you sell calls against it, whether the calls go in the money or they don't, you're not going to change the way you trade on expiry. So you've done your options trade and then you, that's it. So one side of the trade is, is not involved in the market or not involved in trading expiry, blah, blah, blah. They're just kind of, they've done their trade and they're done. And the other side of it are professionals that are in the market, managing their risk, trading their position. So as you approach expiry, you know, let's just say uh, an options at the money, you know, you might manage that position as if it's 50% to be in the money or 50% to be out of the money. And you might, you might hedge yourself accordingly. On expiration, it's binary. It's either in the money or it's out of the money. And so what ends up happening is the professionals, if, if, if there's professionals on both sides, then a lot of the activity gets canceled out because while one person is selling, one person is buying, while one person is buying, one person is selling where you really get the extreme either they're called pins, which is when they stick to a certain price and they don't move, or you get the opposite of a pin, a short pin, when you get a lot of volatility. You get one of those two outcomes when all the professional or the people that are actively trading are on one side and there's someone on the other side not doing anything. And in the case of, a, of where all the professionals or market makers are long options, then when the stock goes up, they're gonna sell. And when it goes down, they're gonna buy. Because when the option goes out of the money, or if, let's say it's a call option, when it goes out of the money, they're long call short stock, they have to get rid of the short stock. When it goes above, they have to short more stock. And so that creates what's called pinning. And so if you ever see a stock on expiry that's like near around nice easy number that where there's a bunch of option open interest and it's not moving and it's stuck there, that's because there's a lot of professionals that are trying to sell it and buy it the minute it goes other way. Now, if it's short, it's the exact opposite effect. So the minute it goes above the strike, 
Now all the professionals need to buy, not sell. And that's when you can get kind of a violent moves on expiry. And so again, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than what you read. And I think that's one of the takeaways with options is that unlike poker, where you can get a run at one subscription or whatever, and you're not going to be the best player in the world, but you're going to get a lot of really good material for not much money. In, in options, there's just nothing, and in a lot of stuff in trading, there's just not good stuff on the internet, in my opinion. And that's an example of one of those things I've seen explained on the internet, but, but I don't think that people really get it. Like, you really only get that activity when you have someone on one side of the trade that's not doing anything. Because if you, were, if, if you had professionals on both sides, it would just cancel out the effect. You say there's a dearth of free information, but there must be people that you follow on Twitter that specialize in derivatives that you think are especially knowledgeable. Uh, who are your top three? Oh, I mean, honestly, I, the Twitter is amazing for me, but I use it almost exclusively for people that are giving news on specific companies. Um, you know, they're, uh, what's the good stuff? There's some guys, there's a guy called the option Hawk or something like that who, um, he puts up stuff like, like most of the stuff on Twitter that's useful is just like people highlighting big trades that are going up. There's really not a ton of great stuff options wise on Twitter. There's a ton of great stuff in my opinion on fundamentals. So like in biotech, for example, there's countless really good, you know, Adam Forstein, I can't pronounce his name or there, I can, you, you can see my Twitter list. I'm happy to sit, share you a list of people that I follow, but there's a ton of great people covering stocks in different sectors, but options stuff, Again, it's really bad on Twitter. It's really bad on the internet. All these guys, occasionally I pull up YouTube and I see these videos that pop up in my feed where people are selling a product or, or showing how to trade options. It is, it is horrible. Like, it's not even close to like reading Phil Helmuth's book on poker. Like, it's just exponentially worse than that. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is really interesting. And I think it has to do with the fact that there's just not, it's not as accessible you know, market making options is not as accessible as, as playing poker. And so there's just, yeah, there's just, and there's, it's back to where uh, the, when, the, when Taylor first made card runners, I remember thinking, why would anyone do this? Like, why are we giving away all this information? Like, why are we, why are we like, why, why do this? And it's just like that right now with, with professional trading, the traders that are making good money, they can't possibly charge enough on these training websites to make it worth it. So there's just, there's just nothing out there. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to poker, yeah. um, your poker now is main event every year plus the occasional million dollar tournament, something like this? Yeah, it's really like I play the circuit events near, near Oklahoma. Uh, there's a couple of those every year. I binked one last year that was really fluky and funny. Um, yeah, I played that million dollar euro thing. I'm on the, I'm on the look for those like amateur only tournaments that the most recent one at Triton, like where you had like half of it was pros, half of it was amateurs. Like I'm not even like, it's not, it's not a good spot for me, obviously, unless I'm like, well, awesome. I, I, don't I don't know. Team Strasser and Chidwick might've, yeah, yeah, might've was, sold for a nice premium. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that team might've sold for a nice premium. <laughs> like I'm, on, I'm always on the lookout for those kind of things where you can, um, those amateur only tournaments that I qualify for, but uh, there, there haven't been, I don't think since the the one in Monte Carlo that I banked that I busted, excuse me, that there hasn't been a whole lot of that. Um, but yeah, for poker, it's uh, it's more. You know, the thing I would say about poker is some of the guys that are crushing it today, I used to play with, and I didn't think they had any game. That's what's always funny about a lot of the stuff. You know, like I'm not going to name names up here, but there are plenty of players today that I thought were just the opposite of creative you know, the opposite of just like maybe they had, you know, their winning players, but just nothing exciting about their game. There wasn't any, any, any pizzazz to it. And, you know, when you look at the super crushers today, the, the thing that makes me happy is the Chidwicks and the D Peters of the world. Like those guys have games. They'll take them to the streets, you know, I, and I, I like that aspect of their game, but then there are a bunch of people that, you know, memorize the answer key and don't apply it. I'm not saying memorizing the PO solver is a bad uh, way of looking at poker it's just not as fun as some of the poker to watch that that old poker in my opinion um and also i i don't think that um i think there are a lot of pros that are step above a step down from the top pros that have just played a really lame boring flavor of poker and uh yeah so for me poker you know i watch videos i i watch more like the ratio of how much do i like uh, 
my, I, I watch more run at once videos than I play poker because my life makes poker playing very hard. I can't really play on the internet. That's not really possible these days, although you're, you're good at that this year. Um, and um, driving to the casino to play five, five, no limit and getting in like 200 hands and driving home. That's depressing. Um, there was like a Russell Westbrook PLO game in town that I couldn't get into. So I was, I was that would have been dope, but um, for the most part, like playing poker doesn't really fit well with my life. So the way I get poker now is I just, I watch videos or I, um, you know, like the recent stuff with the super user or the cheating guy. Like I, I love that kind of stuff. So that's, that's my poker these days. Yeah. Well, in terms of memorizing answer keys, I don't think anyone could argue with the fact that poker is in a long-term process of becoming trivialized. Like we don't know, we don't know exactly the time frames, but because we have gotten to the point where we play a static game where the rules are basically the same and computer computing power has tackled it. It was inevitable that given the static nature of the game, it was yeah. going to yield to analytical methods and computing power. And that has in fact happened. So, so it is true that the computer, even though we know now that their solutions are better than our solutions, it can't explain why the solutions are the solutions. So there's going to be a long process of, humans trying to interpret and, and learn about why the solutions are the solutions. But basically, the solutions are going to be out there increasingly. And the best humans are going to be ones that copy from computers. Copy is not exactly the right word, but learn from computers. And I think the result of that is a trivialization of poker over the long term, which is, which is kind of sad. But for me, I enjoy, um, first of all, because uh, I did have the economics background and was deep into game theory for a while. I enjoy watching that science be applied to poker. So I, I actually like studying the solutions. And then, although the environment at, say, an ARIA tournament is not quite as spicy and interesting as it was in, in 07, um, it's still fun and there's still edge in it because you have 70% of the field that's somewhat close to each other. And then 30% of the field that's just doing random things and not interested in learning. And there's a big edge that the 70% has over the 30%. Um, so I don't know. I think it's still, it's still an interesting world, but it's, it's less interesting than it used to be. And it's in the process of becoming less interesting still. I agree. I mean, poker's always been most fun when you can, try to pick up on what your opponent's doing wrong and, and make adjustments to your game. Like that's always been the most fun. And that's why like uh, playing like the main event is always really fun for me because actually I, playing with, playing with the crushers is fun too. I, I love, I, I, you know, I don't get much experience to play with people like that. So it's, it's always so fun playing with people like that, but just going through each opponent and adjusting and, and making your own ad small adjustments to your strategy or large ones based on the opponent has always been like what I really enjoyed about poker. And you still get to do that today. But when 70% of the field, you're going to be playing the same strategy against, it's just a little bit less opportunities to make fun adjustments. And, um, and yeah, like I, do, I still think there's a big difference though between the really good pros and the second tier ones today, even though they're all studying the same things. I just think that those really good pros are not only good at the, knowing the solutions or knowing close enough what the solutions are, but they, they have a good feel for when to take those like sort of small, like it's not very human to like, 8% of the time here, I'm going to do some crazy bluff. Like, and I just feel like those good players, they have a really good feel for when are a good uh, feel for when they can kind of get one of those plays in and they try those things more than some other players which, who just never take 8% spots just because it's hard for a human to do things like that. So, but yeah, I, I guess like one of the things I loved about poker was making adjustments and you just have less opportunities to do that today when you're going to be playing your best strategy against 70% of the field. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the a lot of the lesser pros now uh, are lesser pros because of uh, a misapplication of theory, a misapplication of the of the solutions that computers are coming up with because many of these solutions are very sensitive and if you don't understand them well enough to know where they're sensitive and where they're likely to break down, you can you can be guilty of, of really misapplying them. So I think over the next couple of years, that's going to be the big difference among pros. Those that 
that understand where the solutions can be trusted and understand where the solutions break down and you have to tread a little bit more carefully. So I think misapplication um, can can cause a lot of problems and, and will cause a lot of problems going forward. If we So if we go back to... Um, uh, 2008, 2009. Who were the players that, as you were, as your poker career was ending, you really wouldn't want to play a hundred hours of live poker with? Who were the guys that you thought were were better I in that live? I know you didn't play as much live then, but who would be the guys that you didn't want to play with? There's one guy who just crushed me online live. There's two guys that crushed me my whole career live and online. Um, Mr. Smokey, shout out to Steve somewhere. I, I, you know, he's one of those guys where he had a lot of success back in the day online, terrific player. Obviously, I, I can't speak for anything, but I don't think he's one of the super crushers today. But he was, uh, he was a killer back then. And, and live, he just always killed me as well. I could never explain it. And the other kid that uh, mostly online just always beat me. Well, the, okay, Nick Shulman. <laughs> Nick Shulman. Uh, I don't think enough is said about his game over the years. Like he was just, I played with him in live games in New York, like private games in New York. I played with him online. That was a guy you never wanted to see. Um, and then the other guy, man, this is bad. Ozzy 87. Remember that guy? Back, way back sure. in the day? Yeah. That guy just crushed me over and over. Crush, 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 crush. So I was like two of the three people that just crushed me back in the day. They don't even play. I, Ozzy, I think is a, went to school and stuff. He's not like a poker guy anymore. And, I'm not sure if Steve plays anymore. I don't really see his name anymore. But back in the day, those were the uh, crushers. And it shows you kind of how um, for every Nick Shulman or Eric Seidel or whatever, there's just – there's so many more that were crushing. There's a lot of churn. Yeah, there there's is a so lot. so much churn, yeah. Nick has he, – he's uh, a long-term face of the game for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, he uh, – he just – yeah. I mean, you really can't comp- – uh, there aren't many people with the live experience that he has. I mean, how many people play more live poker than Nick Shulman in the last 20 years? Like there, there, maybe there's five people. I, mean, I would doubt it though. Um, so you combine that live experience with just like a really awesome mind and also like people skills, like part of being a good pro is getting in the right games. You know, Tony Asfandiari was not one of those people I mentioned back in the day. Like you were, you were never scared to play Antonio back in the day, at least from my perspective. Um, but you know, he's, made a great living on people skills and Nick, I, I throw Nick in there as well. Like he's just very likable guy as well. Can get in all the right games and uh, just, just an awesome player. So I'm only, I'm only going to keep you for five more minutes because okay. I know that you had a full work day before this, but um, one major difference for both online poker and live poker relative to say 2006 was uh, the lack of lifestyle discipline that was evident then among the top players and the extreme lifestyle discipline that's evident now. And um, I know that now for you, a poker tournament is half vacation and half, well, it's probably 90% vacation. I mean, at the main event this year, you were more about uh, going to nice dinners and stuff like that rather than rather than focusing on the tournament, going going to the club, the pool, whatever. Uh, but that is, that is probably the biggest thing that's changed in my poker career was back in 06, 07, the lifestyle discipline was non-existent, terrible. And now, uh, it's kind of a joke how extreme it is. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I mean, yeah, even like now, like I used to, man, when I used to go to Vegas, uh, when I was like, you know, 2012 or 13, I remember I, I met Jason Kuhn for the first time. Like Dave Benefield's one of my good friends. I met Jason through him and I, I couldn't believe they were living in this house and I just couldn't believe like what these guys were doing. They, you know, they were just working out, you know, eating. And it wasn't just like working out and eating. It was also just like a lifestyle and a way of talking about things. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's completely insane. I mean, he, you, you know, back in the day, like that, there was just a ton of like really fat, out of shape people that were competing at poker at the highest level. And how many, how many today do you see like that? There's almost, there's almost none of that. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a little bit of an extreme. It's a little extreme. It's a little annoying too. Like you don't want to, I don't know. For me, it's like, 
I don't want to hear about your diet or your workout. <laughs> but it, it's part of the move towards a hyper competitive space. I agree. And, and you obviously in Wall Street, you see that all the time. Like you see these guys that are running funds that are super competitive. And, and um, the thing that bothers me is when people are really, really competitive at stuff that they're not that good at. Like you see like these like pickup basketball games with poker players, like be way too competitive. It's like nobody here is that is good enough at basketball to be, I don't know. I, I try not to get like emotional about things I'm not very good at. Like how can I expect to be good at golf when I play like three rounds a year? Um, but uh, you, you know, you see that, you see that with poker players and, and wall street guys just taking out their aggression on things that they're not as good at. And, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think in general, it's the same thing in wall street. If I look back when I started my career, there, there's a, there were a lot of it, same, same thing as poker. Like there's way, way, way more, healthy eating at the desk. I had a boss that showed up in 2000, uh, 2010 at Morgan Stanley. And I came in one time with a bagel and he basically yelled at me. He was like, what are you doing? You can't eat a bagel. And you know, I think, I think, I think over time, like it's not just poker. I think a lot of different uh, businesses or areas are, are turning into that. And, and um, well, we're all becoming more like computers. I know it's kind of sad, isn't it? I still, I still, you know, live to eat, you know, not eat to live. So uh, I think food is one of the great things. I think poker players love food too, but, uh, but yeah, it, 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 I agree with you. It's borderline annoying or borderline insane. Some of the stuff that's going on with the healthy eating and healthy dieting. I'm going to ask you one last question and then mm -hmm. we'll cut sure. to that. Um, Practical risk management. Obviously, now you have to make very important decisions where day to day, you could theoretically like wreck your career in one day or one month, right? Like with a bad drawdown, bad series of trades, just in the way that a poker player can wreck their career in a bad week or whatever. Um, and as poker has evolved again, there has been more discipline in terms of risk control. Um, options, it seems like an exceptionally volatile and illiquid space where risk control is really important. Um, how have you learned practically to think about risk control over time? And what are, what are sort of the frameworks that you think about? Do you, do you have some sophisticated like Kelly criterion type methods or, or is it more uh, just heuristics like don't risk more than a certain percentage in a day or a week or whatever? How do, how do you think about risk control? There are two things that I think are really important. Um, the first actually started with the way I approach poker. So, you know, when I, I used to spend my summers in Las Vegas in 2006 and seven, I would get off the plane when I landed in McCarran and I knew how much, I knew how many buy-ins I was going to roughly how much in buy-ins I was going to play that summer for the tournaments. I would mentally lose that money on the plane. Like on the way over to Vegas, I would have already lost the money in my head. And then every day I would go play a tournament and I would say, okay, let's just make the best decision. I'm not worrying about anything else. Like if I lose this money, it's totally reasonable amount of money for me to lose. My life's not going to change. I'm totally comfortable with my loss. Now, let me just play my best and not worry about anything else. So that's how I approach poker. And it's the same thing with trading. You know, when you buy an option, for example, you know what you're going to spend. You, you know, when you buy an option and you lose, you know what you lost. It's like a tournament buy. You know, you spend X. Okay, it goes wrong. You know, you lose X. And I always like doing risk management on the way in. Like before I do a trade, I'm doing the risk management. There's a lot of schools of thought on risk management. I hate having to react and trade around things that are happening and make, you know, oh my gosh, I had this really big short ball position on it. Something crazy is happening. I need to react. I need to do something. I like, rather than doing that, I like sizing it on the way in as if it's going to go really, really badly and be comfortable with that outcome. Well, that's practical because the, the pricing is getting more attractive as it's moving against you and you're losing money, which makes it hard to get out. That's true. And also, I think, especially with options, you just want to be, when you're selling them, you want to be very small. You know, you want, and you want to, bad risk management in what I do 
you would just at some point, like you would just run bad enough where you're out of business. And so, you know, we've been at it for eight years now. I think you have to be very small when you sell options, just like, I mean, there's not a really good poker analogy for selling options, but the same thing, like you, you know, I don't, I always thought Kelly, I'm not sure your opinion, you're more educated on this than I did. I always thought Kelly was very aggressive. Whenever I took Kelly and I applied it to like my poker or my trading or whatever, I always thought Kelly was very, very, very aggressive. And so even half Kelly, very, very aggressive. And I know there are different, different ways of approaching risk management, but I always felt comfortable taking a very, very crude approach on the way in, do the risk management and don't rely on getting in a mess and trying to trade your way out of it or whatever. I've never viewed Kelly as a practical risk management uh, criteria. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a useful way of thinking and it's, it's, useful to maybe develop risk management rules for yourself, but I've never, I've never viewed it as having any real practical application. Okay. That's good to hear. Well, man, this was a, this was a true pleasure. I hope that our, uh, our mutual Twitter audience enjoys this, (laughs) this interaction, this, this old, these old school poker guys going at it. Well, well, at least one of us is washed up. One of us isn't. So that's good. (laughs) All right, my man. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time, man. Talk to you later.